Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Messner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you so much, Sonia. And I, too, would like to welcome everyone to today's program and its on current perspectives on cancer survivorship, which I is of great interest, actually, to many of you on the call today, to, to actually many people who are, who are living with cancer, who are cancer survivors, um, it's, um, it's, it's such an important topic. Today's program, and it's actually exciting to offer this topic today, quite frankly. And we have the best speakers. Um, and today's program is a collaborative effort between Cancer Care and many other cancer organizations. And because of that collaboration and your interest in this topic, which we could really spend days and days talking about, we're going to spend um, today, we're going to have an hour to talk about this. Um, we have over 568 participants on this call today. And you come from all over the United States. And we also have international participants from Australia, Bangladesh, Canada, England, India, Indonesia, New Zealand, Taiwan, United Kingdom, and Venezuela. So it's a bit of an international call, a bit of a global call to some extent. And you can see the interest is really quite widespread. Um, today's program is supported by the Celgene Corporation, Gilead, and Pharmacyclics, Inc. And I really want to thank them for their support of this program today. Now we have the best speakers on the program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Julia Rowland. Dr. Rowland is strategic, is senior strategic advisor at the Smith Center for Healing and the Arts. And Dr. Rowland also previously, and her, um, was for many, many years, um, the director of NCI's Office of Cancer Survivorship. Um, it is my great pleasure to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, um, Dr. Rowland, who actually, I have to say, many, many years ago, supported a 10-year program through NCI of, of just doing, of focusing on this topic when it was really such an important topic and is such an important topic to all of you. So without further ado, Dr. Rowland. Thank you, Carolyn, for the lovely introduction and to the opportunity to be part of the conversation today and a warm welcome to all of our call participants this afternoon. So if we were to take a step back and say why the interest in this particular topic, you may have reasons why you've joined the call today. But if someone asks me that, there's sometimes when I step back and say, the answer to that question is simple. It's a sheer question of numbers. As of January 2018, there were an estimated 16.5 million cancer survivors in the U.S. alone. That figures over 43 million worldwide, and that's an underestimate because the worldwide figures only count people up to five years survivorship. They don't have people who have gone beyond that, and we know there are many. Further, of these individuals in the United States, 45% or almost half were diagnosed 10 or more years earlier. These figures, prevalence or the number of cancer survivors and their expected length of survival, will both continue to rise steadily, driven by advances in early detection, broader dissemination of effective therapies, and better supportive care. Because cancer is a disease largely associated with aging, 
The aging of the nation as well as the global population will also contribute significantly to the growing number of those diagnosed with cancer. And as their numbers have risen, cancer survivors have taught us a number of key lessons about what life is like after cancer. I thought I would start today's conversation highlighting a few of those lessons learned. The first is that language is important, but can be confusing at times. What does it mean to be a survivor? To answer this, I need to trace a bit of U.S. history. In 1986, a group of two dozen individuals convened in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and created what would come to be called the National Coalition for Cancer Survivorship, or NCCS. The founders of NCCS set out to establish an organization that would ultimately replace the words cancer victim with cancer survivor and bring about a different notion of the cancer experience. At the time, again, 1986, to be called a cancer survivor, an individual had to have remained disease-free for a total of five years. NCCS founders, comprised of survivors themselves and cancer care providers and individuals providing services to cancer patients and their families, argued that you should not have to put your life on hold for five years waiting to see if you would be here or not. Even in 1986 in the U.S., more than 50% of those diagnosed would still be around in five years. Rather, individuals needed to think of themselves and be treated as survivors from day one of diagnosis. Hence, they reframed the definition to state that a person could consider him or herself a cancer survivor from the time of diagnosis and for the balance of life. An important point here, however... The coalition founders never meant the term survivor to be a label. Indeed, many people find it objectionable and for a variety of reasons do not think of themselves as survivors. Rather, the coalition founders' intent was twofold. First, to provide a message of hope that there was indeed rich and full life to be lived after cancer. And two, most critically, to promote a dialogue between individuals with cancer and their healthcare team and family at the time of diagnosis about what was important to them, what they wanted and hoped for from treatment in order to tailor their care accordingly. You can't wait to discuss fertility interests until after treatment and perhaps damage has been done, or consider sparing a limb if this is possible or minimizing a possible late effect with adverse consequences to desired lifestyle, those conversations have to start at the beginning. To make matters even more confusing at some level, different from survivor is the term survivorship. Survivorship is often thought of as that period in the cancer trajectory or course of care that starts after acute treatment ends and one is finished with therapy or is simply in ongoing maintenance, when there's no evidence of disease or the disease is considered stable. When we think of those 16.5 million individuals in the U.S. with a cancer history, the vast majority of them fall into this survivorship period. They're not in active treatment. They're not struggling with a recurrence. They're simply living their lives after cancer. 
And the second lesson we learned is that entry into this survivorship phase or recovery can be surprisingly stressful. Much as you may feel excitement and relief to be finished treatment, a whole host of other concerns may arise. Fears that the cancer will somehow return, concern about ongoing monitoring. Before, you may have known who to pick up and call if you had a symptom or a side effect, a nurse or a fellow, a list of people who you could be in touch with. Now who's going to provide that for you? There's a sense of a loss of that supportive environment, that sort of family that became yours while you were in active treatment. And then there are the social demands, family and friends and work colleagues who want you back doing all the things you were doing before at a time when perhaps you're not feeling as well as you did when you started this adventure. That sense of side effects or problems that persist afterwards. And apropos this last point, here's the third lesson we've learned that's clear. Namely, cancer has the capacity to affect virtually every aspect of an individual's life. In the words of one survivor, it's not over when it's over. Dr. Mayer will talk shortly about this in more detail, but we know cancer can have diverse effects on not just one's physical, but also one's psychological, social, economic, and existential sense of well-being. And because finding and transitioning back to what some refer to as a new normal or different normal, and it's stressful, and the myriad challenges may exist, planning for recovery and life after treatment is important. This is a fourth important lesson learned. Several national reports from the Institute of Medicine, now called the National Academies of Medicine, and the President's Cancer Panel have recommended that every survivor receive a survivorship care plan, a kind of roadmap upon completing cancer treatment. This is actually a two-part document. The first part is a treatment summary, including such information as the type of cancer you had, tumor characteristics, stage, markers, perhaps, types of treatment you received, whether surgery, chemotherapy, radiation, immunotherapy, biologicals, complications you may have experienced, and services used. Based on the information in the treatment summary, coupled with your own personal medical history, a plan of care going forward is then generated. Together, these two documents comprise what is referred to as a survivorship care plan. The national reports further recommended that the survivorship care plan contain four essential components. First, surveillance for recurrence or new cancer. What tests need to be done, how often, and what are they looking for? Two, assessment and treatment and referral for persistent effects, like pain or fatigue or depression or employment challenges. Three, evaluation of risk for and prevention of late effects. Can you reduce risk of second cancers, cardiac problems? And as part of this, what's important about health promotion? And fourth, coordination of care. What's the frequency of visits, tests to be done? Who's going to be performing those? And what's your role in all of this? Survivorship care plans are meant to be living documents, updated regularly. If you don't have one, it's not to worry. It's never too late to generate one. One site you can go to for ideas about this is called journeyforward.org, www.journeyforward.org. You can see what this might entail. 
Dr. Fleischman will talk shortly about why and how to use these documents best. For now, I'm going to return you back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Rowland. That was really wonderful, a wonderful introduction to this whole program, setting the stage for it. And we do look forward to questions for you and for our other speakers during the Q&A. Thank you so much. And our next speaker um, is Dr. Deborah Mayer. Uh, Dr. Mayer is a nurse by training, PhD in nursing. She's the interim director of NCI's Office of Cancer Survivorship, Division of Cancer Control and Population Sciences, National Cancer Institute. And she's also the Francis Hill Fox Distinguished Professor, School of Nursing, Director, Cancer Survivorship, UNC Weinberger, Comprehensive Cancer Center, University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And Dr. Mayer is going to address managing post-treatment side effects or late effects, quality of life concerns, including fear of recurrence, and finding your new normal. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mayer. Well, thank you very much, Carolyn and, and Dr. Rowland. That was a lovely um, introduction for this whole topic, and we'll build on that as well. I'm going to first talk a little bit about what that transition from being on treatment to being off treatment, and that is a bigger transition, as you alluded to, um, than most people are prepared for. They're just glad to be done, and then all of a sudden sitting at home, it's like, now what? And I think that part of the issue about a survivorship care plan is meant to help people during that transition, um, but many people feel like um, they've been seeing both other patients regularly as well as their health care providers, and now it's down to maybe coming back in three or six months for a visit or what have you, and so um, it's often a period of transition emotionally as well as physically. As far as the side effects from treatment, many of them get better over time once treatment has stopped. Um, for many, that may be a few weeks where you notice hair regrowing if the hair was lost due to chemotherapy or energy returning, um, but there are maybe months before you know what you're going to be left with as far as any side effects that may be staying with you. So for example, if you've received any kind of chemotherapy that has caused numbness or tingling in your hands and feet, it may be that it gets better and better, but maybe it doesn't totally go away. But you may not know that until about the end of the first year. So in being kind to yourself, I would say, think that the first year is about recovering physically and emotionally from dealing with the diagnosis and treatment. Many times we're so busy during treatment to get up for the next appointment or to get the tests that are needed that it's basically putting one foot in front of the other. When treatment ends is the time where you emotionally may be absorbing all that has happened to you, and, and that can take a while for that to sort of settle in. Meanwhile, friends and families and coworkers think, oh, this is good news, your treatment's over, now we can get back to normal. But that's not really what happens. And the whole idea of getting back to normal um, may not be possible for somebody who's been diagnosed and treated for cancer. And I know a lot of survivors tell me that they don't like the word about, oh, I'm going to have a new normal. They want their old lives back. And that can be very difficult because it will take a while until you see what you can recover or be back to doing what you were, and those things that have been changed either physically or psychologically or emotionally to um, having gone through that experience. 
And some of those changes may be subtle. Some of them may not be so subtle that you may not be able to do some of the things you thought you could do before, or you may feel differently about wanting to do them. Um, So sometimes work needs to be adjusted, relationships shift or change. Um, It's an old adage to say that you find out who your friends are and aren't during this time, and it may be that in the recovery period, um, you reevaluate your relationships and who you are and how you are in those relationships. So the finding the new normal piece is not something that there's a line that one day you're um, under treatment and not thinking about too much of it, and then afterwards um, you have this new life. It's something that's gradual and um, oftentimes very subtle. In my own experience, it took me about four years to evolve to realizing what the impact of my own cancer had on me and how I operate and how I feel about things. Um, It didn't change things physically for me, but it did change things psychologically and emotionally for me and how I thought about those. And that's not necessarily visible work. Your friends and families and coworkers just see you back and off treatment. And so it's very hard for them to truly understand this process that you're undergoing. Some call it a journey. Other people don't like that language. Um, And sometimes you find more strength and support from other people who have been through it than um, talking to your family and friends about it because they understand that in a different way. And then the other piece that we'll be talking about is sort of what what's happened to your quality of life if your life does not return to normal or what was your normal. And most people adapt and adjust in some way to whatever those changes are, um, although there may be some impairments and you can't do some of the things that you used to be able to do. Most people can find some type of support to help in adapting to that, whether it's seeing rehabilitation folks, a a physical therapist or an occupational therapist, or seeing a counselor can often help with managing the transition to what those new capabilities are. But one of the common things that occurs after treatment ends is a feeling of anxiety um, around While I was on treatment, I felt like the cancer was being taken care of. As much as I didn't like the treatment, I felt more secure. Now that treatment's over or I'm now just taking a pill for ongoing therapy, um, I'm more worried about it. And that is a very normal fear of recurrence um, of the cancer coming back. And what I tell people when I see them is um, that's a normal thing to happen, especially around times for appointments coming back for checkups or for repeat tests. For example, if you had breast cancer, when you're getting a mammogram again, that may stir up all those memories and feelings about when you were first diagnosed. That is perfectly normal. Um, The concerns are when those fears don't go away after the visit's over and you found out that the mammogram was fine, um, or how much it interferes with your daily life. If that's the case, then you may want to seek out somebody to speak to about that. But what I tell people is, you know, if this bothers you a couple days or a week before your appointment, those are not good times to make big decisions because it's going to be influenced by the concerns you have for that upcoming visit. Um, But you should be aware of your own pattern 
and then learn how to manage that as you go in. So, for example, I might recommend after a, a visit that you do something good for yourself so you have something positive to look forward on the other end of that if if you're feeling up to those kind of things like um, visiting a friend for lunch on your way out of the appointment or other kinds of things if you can manage that. Um, if the fear of recurrence does interfere with your sleep, um, your mood in between those visits or your relationships or your ability to work, then that gets to the level where you probably want to see somebody to talk about it and see how you can manage that better. Because worrying about it isn't going to change anything, but it will affect how you feel about yourself and what's going on. And I think that's an important thing to think about. So that period of from on treatment to off treatment, I say that first year or two is when a lot of those adjustments are going on, but it's not like then it's over and you're back to your old self or whatever your new self is. The fact that you've been through this experience will affect you in different ways for the rest of your life. And getting comfortable with that and understanding and reflecting on that, I think, is an is important aspect of um, reflecting on the cancer journey and seeing what that means for you. For many people, there's a silver lining um, in that they've learned new things. They've learned how strong they are or how to cope. They've made new friends. They've learned new ways to deal with the world that they live in. Um, but again, you know, most people would rather have foregone the cancer experience than to have to have learned all those new things. And that goes on um, pretty much for a long time after the diagnosis of cancer. So I'll look forward to hearing um, Dr. Fleischman also talk about this transition and any other questions or comments um, our listeners have. And thank you very much for inviting me to today. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Mayer. That was really outstanding and wonderful um, presentation, and I know there'll be questions for you during the Q&A as well. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Stuart Fleischman. Dr. Fleischman is former founding director, Cancer Support Services, Continuing Cancer Centers of New York, and he's author, researcher in oncology. Dr. Fleischman is going to address follow-up care with your oncologist and primary care doctor, the benefits of communicating with your healthcare team, and key questions to ask them. It's my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Fleischman. Great. Thank you, Dr. Messner, and thank you again, everybody, for being on the call and uh, trying to learn as much information about this. As the uh, both speakers have said, this is a difficult transition, and it's not the same for everybody. Um, it really depends upon lots of um, things that uh, are more than just desire. Um, uh, what kind of cancer you've had, the types of treatment you've gotten. Um, and many patients ask us, well, how long should I see my oncologist? And where is my primary care doctor and his or her team and all this? And that also uh, depends upon your situation. Um, for folks who do have um, medical insurance, sometimes the insurer will direct that decision. Um, it can be appealed. You can sometimes work with the company uh, to try to get more visits with your oncologist um, after treatment is over or more visits with your primary care doctor during the uh, time you're in treatment. But sometimes that's dictated by reimbursement. Not always. Um, the um, pairing of uh, both teams working together may be ideal, uh, especially if they are of one mind. Um, it would probably be 
helpful for many folks to be in touch with their primary care doctor uh, during their treatment, even if um, they're not seeing them formally to keep them updated. Sometimes that's possible, sometimes not. Um, and it is a good thing for the oncologist, one of the oncologists, or maybe the medical oncologist, surgical oncologist, and radiation oncologist to communicate in some way with the primary care team after treatment is over. And that is pretty a, a good deal of why the survivorship care plan um, has been made a, a more f official way to do that. That's often taken care of if all of your doctors work in the same system uh, because the uh, primary care team can access the oncology visits and the oncologist can access your primary care visits. But it's only partial information because the, there is some specific information that needs um, to have consensus between all of your providers. Um, so uh, beyond who should I see and how often I should see them, which is terribly individualized, there are a number of things that your primary care team needs to know and do. I say primary care team because as um, our medical care system is evolving, uh, it's changing in some ways we like, in some ways we don't, it's not only the doctor who is communicating, taking information, um, and really providing care. It's more of a team effort, and many primary care offices um, rely heavily on um, nurse practitioners or uh, physician's assistants. Sometimes uh, if your primary care doctor works in a large group, there is a social worker, a nutritionist, a physical therapist, or an exercise physiologist available. Um, and uh, all this information needs to be communicated amongst all of these folks. Um, so the kinds of th the, 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 to figure out what your primary care doctor and team needs to know and do, it really does depend upon the kind of treatment you've got, um, uh, whether it is all three modalities, surgery, uh, chemotherapy, and radiation therapy, or only one or only two. Uh, another um, piece of information that's vitally important is what kind of vigilance program needs to be in place. Uh, the previous uh, speaker spoke about the possibility of getting cancer again, the same cancer back, or secondary cancer, or a cancer that is related to um, treatment, although that's, they, these are common, they're not frequent. Um, and um, uh, once you're finished with treatment, you've taken a deep breath, uh, the kinds of information that needs to be addressed by your treatment teams is how often do you need scans? What type of scans? What other blood tests or other tests can be done to make sure that the cancer is away, that there's no new cancer associated with the original cancer or no new cancer associated with treatment? Uh, the previous speakers also spoke a lot about uh, long-term side, longer-term side effects. Again, depending upon the cancer and the treatment, uh, do those need to be assessed periodically? Do those need special management? Is there an ongoing need for physical therapy, occupational therapy, speech therapy, um, nutritional therapy? All of those things are vitally important all the way through treatment, but especially in the period <clears throat> after treatment is over. Um, cancer screening is something that um, we all need to have good conversations with our medical team about. Is that schedule changed because you've had cancer? Do you need more screening or fewer screenings? And that would be individualized depend upon, depending upon the kind of cancer and the kind of treatment and your age. Um, 
someone needs to keep that schedule and timetable and make sure that things aren't neglected. Again, that's part of the discussion you'd be having with your primary care team and or the oncologist or maybe both. There are also different things that come up with regular health problems all throughout life that may uh, be affected by having had cancer. Uh, for example, uh, we try to discourage the use of antibiotics in a widespread way unless there's a clear need um, when there's a bacterial infection. But um, people with cancer may be put on antibiotics sooner than someone who hasn't had cancer in the past. Um, there may be a, a change in a birth control method. There may be a change in a bowel regimen, the care of the care of the hair, the skin, the nails, even the need for ongoing formal care for your feet. Maybe something that is now included in your regular health maintenance that may not have been included without having had cancer or may have been added to your health care regimen earlier in life rather than later. So all of these things need to go into the thinking that the primary care team and the oncologist ideally can do together, but uh, through cooperation and especially some information passed back and forth or passed by the survivorship care plan um, can be uh, very, very helpful to you and to your family. That's pretty much half of it, and the other half is what all of us need to know and do as patients, especially if you've had cancer before. And that includes um, the kinds of things that have been spoken about before, understanding what the adjustment is like, understand the usual and expectable way that people feel, um, that it's not an easy time, that it's very difficult, but other people have gone through this before. There's a wealth of good information out there, some bad information, but a wealth of good information. But the other things that need to be done, pretty much um, the same things that you were focusing on during treatment, but perhaps in a different way. <clears throat> How much activity do you need? Um, is it aerobic activity, like uh, walking or um, uh, using a treadmill or another exercise machine? Is there um, endurance or strength training involved, like with weights, flexibility training, like with yoga or stretching? Um, what kind, how has the having had cancer affected your body's ability to get a good night's sleep? As we get older, our sleep is hardly ever the way it was when we were younger, but that may, ha may have been affected by your treatment. What is the right thing to do and how to go about it? And sometimes medications are only one part of a puzzle. And the third, and some people argue maybe one of the most important things, would be nutrition, the kinds of things that one can eat to stay as close to their ideal body weight as possible, um, to have um, more lean muscle and less fat is something that all of us try to, um, try to reach, but maybe a slightly different route, and there may be different suggestions uh, once you've had cancer. It's amazing that uh, the, the kinds of suggestions that people make after cancer to prevent heart disease in general, good living are all quite similar, but there may be some specifics um, depending upon the cancer and the treatment you've had. And then the general stuff that many folks um, know is sometime, are sometimes really difficult to do, avoiding tobacco products, avoiding alcohol completely or mostly. Um, the, the, there's some conflicting data on that, as there is for a number of these things, as well as avoiding use of other drugs. So the, the, broad, broad, the broad, broad strokes 
about what your primary care team needs to know and do and what you need to know and do are um, kinds of things that go into our general health maintenance with the added responsibilities of taking the cancer and its treatment into account. I will stop here uh, so we have adequate time for questions. Thank you, everybody. Uh, well, thank you so much, Dr. Fleischman. That was very informative, very helpful, and um, I know there will be questions for you always during the Q&A. And I do want to say a few words about cancer care before we take questions, so please actually start to everyone think about your questions. I know some of you are posting questions already because you've been on programs before, but as soon as I conclude my few remarks, we will then um, our, um, our will tell you how to cure for questions, and we'll take as many of your questions as possible. So just a word about cancer care. It's a national organization and provides oncology social work services to people who are both living with cancer and cancer survivors and um, who are post-treatment um, and or who may consider themselves survivors. And um, the um, services include a chance to talk with one of our staff. Um, some of you talk with our staff on the telephone or you can email us and, and have a conversation online. We also have about 138 online support groups and they, of course, include so many different topics, certainly topics on survivorship, caregivers, um, you know, different types of cancers um, that people may be dealing with or have dealt with, um, all different ages in terms of the groups. Um, so groups for young adults, groups for older adults, um, middle-aged adults. Um, so um, it's, it's something for everyone there, and many people like the online groups. This is particularly helpful for people all over the country and internationally because it, these groups do not occur in a specific time. So you can post any time of the day or night, and they are moderated by an oncology social worker who checks the posts during the day. Um, and so also we do have telephone support groups, and we also have a program called Cancer Care for Kids, and then teens and young adults, um, so we actually help um, the specific populations with their particular needs, um, often uh, children who are affected by cancer in their families, and teens as well, and young adults who are living with uh, cancer who may be caregivers to uh, another family member as well. Um, and we also provide, and this is particularly true, just this particular program is only true for people in the United States, we offer financial assistance, co-payment co co assistance, um, for many of the costs, and we also have a financial assistance program for many of the costs associated with, with cancer and uh, dealing with cancer. Um, and, um, and we do have many programs like this, many coming up. There are many being planned at the moment. And we also have a whole publications, uh, lots of publications you can get from us. And we do have publications on survivorship, although I must say the National Cancer Institute has a wonderful array of survivorship program materials that you can access, which are really terrific, the Office of Cancer Survivorship. Um, so hear more about that probably during the Q&A as well. So there's lots of information for you, and it doesn't just, and I'm, although I'm talking about cancer care, it does also come from many of the other organizations that are partnering with us that also have some comparable, some different materials that would be helpful to all of you. And now we have time for questions, so I'm going to ask um, Sonia to tell everybody how to queue up the questions, and we're going to let the questions begin, and please bring on all of our speakers as well. Okay. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star than one on your touchdown telephone. If your question has been answered and you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking ask a question. And our first question comes from Stephanie C. Your line is now open. 
Yes, thank you so much. I have to thank you so much, Carolyn Messner. This is excellent. I have two questions. The first question I have is, I have great difficulty since I'm a psych nurse and social worker and a 12-year breast cancer survivor. And I'd like to know, why is it so difficult when you go and ask to go to job, volunteer jobs or per diem regular jobs that I like to talk about my story uh, maybe to other people, especially at hospitals, and they really do not want you to talk about it, especially at hospitals. And secondary, I have qu- questions about why you're such a low resistance. My medical doctor said because of having breast cancer any or other cancers, you have a low resistance of getting ill like colds and viruses that you need to stay away from people, especially if they're infectious and especially at the hospital. So it's like a double whammy. Then what do you do? Because then people say, well, you're always saying and you had breast cancer, but you don't want to fall back on that. So those are really important things for me, especially having had breast cancer 12 years and being a social worker nurse. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie. Um, Donaya, could you start with that question? I'll address it in some way. Well, I think uh, part of the issue about sharing your story with other patients at an institution, I think that's probably just a very cautious approach because sometimes people don't know how to share their stories. Now, you have a professional background, um, and you would probably be very sensitive to this and use it therapeutically, but they probably make rules to apply to everybody because they've they're not sure how everybody will come across. And there are some people who may be still having issues and when they talk about it um, might distress somebody hearing about it. So I think it's a more um, universal decision than it would be a specific decision. Um, and that can be very difficult um, because sometimes it's very appropriate to share a story um, and sometimes it's it's less so. So it really it really depends. And institutions are probably being very conservative and cautious when they make a decision like that. Um, the issue about um, are you immunosuppressed or more vulnerable for infections afterwards, again, that's a very individual story based on whether somebody had systemic therapy like chemotherapy and how well their immune system recovered after that. But as a blanket, I mean, uh, Dr. Fleischman may be a better person to respond to that question, but if you recover well and your immune system and your blood counts recover well, um, you may not be as vulnerable as as you're led to believe, but there may be some people who are left with some residual issues that may make them at risk. Well, thank you so much. And Dr. Fleischman, do you want to add to that as well? Yeah, I think that's the right information. Um, I, I also, we all need to acknowledge that sometimes there are things that we just don't know everything about, and sometimes being cautious is the way to go in a circumstance like that. And I, I think being careful without inhibiting your life to the point of being afraid to do things is probably the best advice in general. So that's a very good point. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Rowan, do you want to add anything as well? No, I have nothing to add. All good, good, okay, good responses. Thank you. Okay. Um, and we have um, a question, another question um, from, another telephone question, I believe. Is that right, Sonia? Thank you. And our next question comes from Marcia R. Your line is now open. Hi. Thank you so much for this conversation. And a question that I have, as was mentioned earlier, psychologically, the effects, it's very difficult for people who have not gone through cancer to understand, which of course is a given. Are there any tips 
that any of the doctors could share to maybe make it easier for a non-cancer person to understand what your feelings are? Well, that's such a great question. Um, that comes up a lot. Thank you. That That's a wonderful question. Um, that could actually be its own call, actually, our own program, actually. Um, <laughs> so thank you. Um, Dr. Rowland, do you want to start with that one? Do you... So, Marcia, that's a really wise question, and, and I think people struggle with it all the time, is how, how to talk about your experience and have other people understand what you've been through if they've not had an experience similar to yours. And I think part of it is recognizing that you as a survivor or if you love someone who is a survivor is trying to understand their perspective and also realizing if you're the person who's had the cancer experience, you may be in that informing role that you may need to, like it or not, help people understand what it's been like for you because if you haven't been through it yourself, you may not, quote, unquote, get it or really you know, be aware of what the challenges are and how much time it takes. I think one of the biggest issues in survivorship and recovery is that people don't realize how long it takes. And friends in particular and family may want someone to, you know, just pick it up and move right on and put this behind you. And as you've heard all of the speakers today discuss, it takes time processing what's happened to you, figuring out how you want to move forward and what that's going to look like all takes time. And giving yourself space to do that and asking people to give you space to do that is really important. Excellent. Thank you. And uh, Dr. Fleischman, do you want to add anything to that? Yeah, I, I agree with uh, what uh, has been said. But also there's a, there's a tradition um, often ascribed to uh, the south, southern part of the United States, but I think is universal and in, um, in many religions also about just being there as being a, a lot of solace. Um, and it's not a matter of saying the right things all the time, but just people know that they're not going through a situation alone can be extremely comforting. That's the basic step. Um, doing things um, can also help break the ice. Um, working on an activity, helping somebody with a task um, may be a way to open up a door for a good discussion about uh, what the situation is like. So I, I think those are two practical things I've, I've seen people do throughout uh, my career that can be extremely helpful. And Dr. Mayer, do you want to add as well? The only thing I would add is that although it's not meant to put the burden on the person with cancer, but a lot of times people will take your cue as to how or if you even want to talk about it. And so sometimes you can even just develop your pat answers if you don't like how the conversation is going or you don't want to be talking about it, saying things like, I'm sure you, you think that is helpful. I would rather not talk about it today. Or today I'm having a cancer-free day and I really don't want to talk about it. You know, so I'm just going to go on about my life. And so part of that is in the interaction as well. Um, and, and I think we are educators of those other people to help them understand what we're going through in different ways as well. And so I think that having pat answers for a lot of questions that people give, like coming up to you and looking deeply into your eyes and saying, how are you? <laughs> you know, we wouldn't necessarily do that to somebody else. 
and and to think about how you want to respond to those kind of things, either with humor or in any other way that you want to do that. So I think um, it helps us prepare for those awkward situations where people don't know how to be and they say sometimes things that might be awkward or um, you know a little a little un- uncomfortable. Thank you. And, and you know, the reality is that many people are just not socialized as to what to say or do. They don't really know what to do. And so they, it, and I think as you're saying, Dr. Mayer, people may be awkward and may end up not saying something that's helpful, not intending to, but just, they just don't know what to say. And so I think, um, I know in a lot of the support groups that we run, this comes up a lot with people that one expected to be supportive who may not be, and people who one maybe in a group they find that they're getting more of that support because I think as we mentioned earlier, people have walked in those same shoes and they're able to be, people are able to come up with some thoughts together of what, how to handle this. So it's, it is, it's definitely, a, it's a wonderful question. It does actually merit its own program because it's so universally heard by many of us, um, by people who are, um, who are either going through the cancer experience or who are cancer survivors. It's definitely, um, definitely um, there. And we have another question from one of our online um, uh, participants. Um, and uh, this question I'm going to um, ask Dr. Roland if you could address this. Any thoughts on special needs for survivorship in metastatic cancers, such as brain, which will most likely return at some point, but unsure when? So this, again, raises a great issue is, you know, when, when does, you're a survivor forever. And what's this whole issue about survivorship? And when we think about survivorship, it's that kind of period during the course where you you may just be, your disease is stable, whether it's you've got metastatic disease or non-metastatic disease, it's just whatever you're doing right now or have had done, it's it's stable. And I think the issue there is just living your life as fully as possible and finding some place to, to park that worry about is this cancer going to come back? What do you do with that? And it's not a regular anxiety. You heard Dr. Mayer talk about when do you pick up the phone and ask for help because this is just a, a concern that's getting in the way of your ability to live fully and as opposed to I know it's there. I can't make it go away 100%, but I can enjoy life and do the things I want to do and be as active as possible. I hope, I hope I'm ask, answering the question that's online. It's hard not to be able to have you articulate, the person who asked the question articulate what you are thinking about as you pose that question to us about how to live fully with disease for years, potentially, that may be metastatic. That's actually a very different phenomenon in today's world, actually. Dr. Fleischman, do you want to comment on that in terms of people living with metastatic disease for a long time as survivors? As uh, chemotherapy and radiation therapy have gotten better, and certainly with some of the new targeted therapies, um, sometimes uh, even cancer that has spread to other parts of the body can be effectively treated. Um, That's kind of a funny thing here because uh, it's not like that part of the body goes back to being 100% functional, uh, whether it's um, a nerve ending problem or a bone or even a spot in the brain, um, it may be that the cancer is totally gone, but there may be scar tissue that's interfering with a good quality of life. I, I guess working with your team to know exactly uh, how the cancer and or the treatment, even 
successful has affected you, um, and if there's any limitation you have, and then figuring out how to get around it may be one of the most practical ways to uh, try to put in, into reality what uh, the other presenters have been saying, which is to understand this is happening and keep going. And sometimes you need help from an expert to figure out what's the workaround in order to do that properly. Excellent. Thank you. And, and Dr. Mayer, do you want to add as well? No, I don't have anything other than <laughs> the fact that we have more and more people living in various stages of cancer, either in remission but knowing it probably will recur, or with disease that's being kept in check. Um, so that's why there's all different kinds of survivors. And I think that that group particularly feels um, left out of how we usually approach it, which is you're either cured or you're not, and there's this big in-between, um, and most of us don't know how to live with that kind of knowledge or helping people to do that as best as possible. But that's um, true in other types of diseases where it may um, may affect a person um, for example, people with heart failure with, that may be under good control but maybe not totally going away or other kinds of things. And it's a very difficult place to be. And I don't think we know enough yet about how to be helpful in ways that make that a lot easier. That's an excellent point. It's something that we're really working on very hard um, um, in, in helping people with, um, I think um, some people, not everyone, finds it helpful to talk to somebody um, in, a, in a support group. Um, some people find it helpful to be um, to talk to the healthcare team. Um, it is it, it is helpful if when you're ready to actually talk with someone. Sometimes that can be useful. Sometimes people find it helpful to read materials about about this. But this is definitely um, this is amazing. Again, this is a very important question. It too could be its own program. It's actually these are very important. This is a we couldn't ask for a better group of participants on today's program. Really, quite um, on target with really the key issues in um, in cancer survivorship today. And um, um, we could first really really thank you for that very much. Um, and um, so here's a question from one of our online participants. Um, and I'm going to ask uh, Dr. Mayer if you could address this. What follow-up care should I receive when my treatment is finished? Well, the follow-up care for the cancer is for a couple of reasons. The reason we like to see people afterwards is to see how the side effects are resolving um, um, from treatment and to make sure the person's getting any kind of help they may need in the meantime. Um, and then the second is to do tests to see um, and to check to see if the cancer has come back. And that's called surveillance testing. And that is done um, on a regular schedule and it's different by different types of cancers and by different circumstances depending on the, the person themselves and where they're being seen. So it may be for breast cancer, a mammogram once a year and a clinical breast exam um, regularly, or for other diseases, it may be repeat scans or what have you. Um, I think people feel more reassured when they have more tests, but that's not necessarily the best thing to do because there have been a number of studies to sh show that doing more tests is not helpful and may actually expose people to more radiation. For example, um, having multiple CAT scans if they're not needed 
um, may not be helpful, we want to do things that aren't harmful either. So that is the part of the survivorship care plan. That's to map out the future plan for how often you'll be seen to be examined and to be assessed as to how you're doing, as well as what tests may be needed. And that should be mapped out when treatment ends so people know what's, what's going to be happening. That may need to be modified or changed over time, but um, you should be able to ask those questions and somebody should be able to lay out what to be expecting. Excellent. Thank you very much. And um, uh, Dr. Rowan, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I just want to emphasize what Dr. Mayer said. I mean, that's the whole purpose of a survivorship care plan. It's really a tailored uh, roadmap, if you would like, for your health and recovery after cancer. And that's why it's unique to you. It's Each one is going to be a little bit different depending on the nature of your cancer and its treatment and who you are and what you came into the experience with and where you are in your own life trajectory what's important. I, other thing I would emphasize in here, it's an opportunity to, to take a look at health behaviors because what we're learning now is that lifestyle is very important for our cancer survivor population, that they're looking at diet, weight, physical activity, sunscreen use, alcohol intake, tobacco, things that would potentially alter their health going forward and possibly their cancer outcome going forward. So we, we want to be sure we're really promoting well-being after treatment. So that's a really important part of follow-up care plan. And it also emphasizes this point that Dr. Fleischman brought up too, is who, who's going to be delivering this care? One thing that a lot of survivors don't realize is that just because you've had cancer, you can't neglect the rest of your body and, and well-being. And often what happens is so one is so caught up in doing your cancer follow-up that you forget that you have to take care of. Did you get your flu shot this year? Is your diabetes under control? How is your blood pressure? Uh, is your oral health good? So we need to be sure that individuals are hooked back into the primary care system so that they're getting all the things you would do regardless of a cancer history, but potentially tailored because of it if you're at increased risk, for example, for cardiovascular disease because of your treatment. So follow-up care roadmap is really important. Excellent. Thank you. Dr. Fleischman, do you want to add anything as well? I think the advice given now is, is really good and really sound. There are, are multiple guidelines out for um, the kinds of follow-up care uh, patients need after having cancer, but it's important to realize that those are just guidelines and they need to be tailored, as Dr. Rowland said, to the individual. Um, guidelines are sometimes made to be broken, maybe oftentimes made to be broken for a good reason. Um, and that's the discussion between you and your healthcare team and why that's so important. And this uh, this is going to be our last question, but it is, and we may have actually covered it in part, but um, we'll hear it is again. Um, uh, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm going to ask Dr. Mayer to, um, it feels familiar, we may have covered this terrain already, but let me, um, who, who do I, this is an online question, who do I talk to about my long-term and latest sex? cancer, do I talk to my oncologist or my primary care physician? Maybe it's similar but different to a previous question. You could address this because I think it's an issue that people struggle with. Well, there's, I think both, but the first person to talk to to learn more about what the risks are is to talk to the oncology team, to talk about what are the potential long-term and late effects of the disease and treatment that they were treated for. 
and the other is to communicate with the primary care provider to make sure that they are aware of those um, so that they can be monitoring for them or know what's normal or what's expected or what might be done to either prevent or manage them as they come along. So for example, as I've mentioned before, with the peripheral neuropathies, with the numbness and tingling in hands and feet, it may um, get almost better, but still be a problem a little bit. And to know what that baseline is, is going to be very important, especially if the person develops diabetes who may also cause those kind of problems. So the primary care provider definitely needs to be aware of those. There are some, um, uh, guidelines or templates to be shared with the primary care provider and the oncologist can do that um, as well that the American Cancer Society and the American Society of Clinical Oncology has developed them from the most common cancers and that can be a tool that can be used for both as well as um, with the person themselves to just be aware of what the potential is. Excellent. And um, Dr. Fleischman, do you want to add to that? Okay. <laughs> and Dr. Rowland? Yeah, the only thing I would add, I agree, nice answer from Dr. Mayer is is that with the newer therapies, we're actually uh, exploring those. So it's mm -hmm. important mm -hmm. for individuals to have conversations with their physicians because in some cases it's not clear whether something is really a secondary effect to cancer and its treatment or simply a process of, of aging. You're getting older or some other ex type of exposure. So don't think something's trivial. If something's bothering you, be sure to bring it before one of your physicians and say, could this? be related to my cancer and its treatment? And if so, how should we proceed and, and, and make a, a wise conversation based on that? So no trivial questions here, uh, particularly if you're somebody who's had these newer therapies where we don't have longer-term data and it's not clear what some of those long-term and late effects are, and sharing that and getting your concerns addressed and hopefully the problem solved. Excellent. Wow, this has been amazing. I want to thank our speakers. You have been phenomenal. I, I have to say this has been uh, an amazing uh, team here. Um, we're going to bring them back. Um, we have a lot of questions here that we actually could make a program about ourselves, so actually another program for all of you. Um, I also want to thank our participants. Actually, um, you've asked really great questions, both on the telephone and online, which really enhanced our call and allowed our speakers to elaborate on points further. Um, and I want to thank all of you for just being on the call today. Now, I know there are still questions in queue, so I, I do want to be sure that um, you have a way to get your questions answered. And based on the call today, you may have some hints of things that I may say now, but certainly your healthcare team is an excellent resource. And I, we're hearing, I think, both your oncologist and your primary care team, or if you have some other health problem, um, some other what we call um, chronic health problem, often called comorbid health problem, that you also could take it to that specialty physician. So you may have a couple of people that you may bring it up to. Um, I think that's a very important thing to do um, and have that conversation even to get them to talk to each other and also to talk to you about what, what, might be, what your concerns might be. Um, and then I know you all like to check things out in terms of a, a credible website or a place to go to to get information. So I always recommend the National Cancer Institute, Office of Cancer Survivorship, of course, is a wonderful resource. Um, and we will be sending you all of those links um, 
you know, in your when you get your evaluation, rather than giving you all these numbers that you have to write down diligently, um, we're going to actually send that to you. Also, Dr. Roland had mentioned a resource for all of you, um, and um, I just want to let you all know that um, that the correct email address for that the correct website which she had given to all of you um, will be given to all of you which is www.journeyforward.org and you'll get that so you don't have to worry about trying to take it down and then check it out unless it's the correct one we will send you all the correct um, websites also the National Cancer Institute does have a live chat feature so for people internationally you don't have to just rely on an 800 number or for people nationally you can actually contact um, use their live chat feature go to their website and you can have a live chat with one of their information specialists about one of your questions so to get really credible information we very much recommend that also um, we do partner with many other organizations and you'll be getting all of their resources as well and that they're also depending on the type of cancer you had um, they might be places that you might like to actually follow up with as well. So there's lots of different, um, you know, resources for you out there. Um, actually, many. Um, so we often like to start with the National Cancer Institute. That seems like a very nice resource to begin with. Um, you also, if you have specific needs that meet the needs of cancer care, you can contact us at Cancer Care, um, both our telephone number and um, our. Um, you know, our website and, of course, take advantage of those services. But most importantly, as we conclude our program today, I would not want any one of you to feel that you're alone in coping with survivorship issues. Um, you know, as a cancer survivor, I want you to know that you're now part of a really large network of services that you can access, both starting with your healthcare team um, as well as other institutions that could be helpful to you. Um, and um, incredible institutions that we're we're recommending today, and, and you'll be getting again in your evaluation. You'll be getting a listing of all of those resources. I do want to just mention in concluding that we do have we just started a meditation app. It's on our website, and actually many people have downloaded it and found it very helpful because indeed um, that people sometimes feel a bit stressed or anxious, and actually having some relaxation exercises at your disposal people have found to be very useful. So take advantage of that. Um, of course, there are many apps out there for you to choose from, so I just wanted to mention that one. And um, with all that being said, I want to wish you all a very fine day, and thank you all for your participation today on this program today. It's been a joy having you on the call today. You've been an amazing group. Thank you. Well, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop, and you may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.